call for all of us to recognise and acknowledge the fact of occupation, to rethink the received colonial settler narrative. You're listening to Deadly Justice with Sarush and Talawa. Welcome to this week's show. Uh, you're listening to Tallulah and Sarush, and this week we are talking about the welfare cashless debit card. Do you want to give us a little bit of an intro, Sarush? Yeah, sure. We are talking about, I guess, welfare generally, but a lot of measures that the government has brought in over the last few years. One of those measures in the Kimberley, in the East Kimberley in particular, has been the cashless debit card. But these are proposals before Parliament right now about extending the card into different places. So there is a measure to extend or to move people in the whole of the Territory who are on Basics card over to the Cash Stepard card. And there's even suggestions over the last year and it's there's a bill before Parliament talking about drug testing people to um, essentially punish them if, if they show positive results for drug testing to um, take them off any form of welfare for a period of time. And so we're going to talk to a few guests who have done research in both welfare itself and drug testing. But before we do, I thought it'd be a good kind of introduction for us to just have a bit of a yarn about, I don't know, what is welfare? What's it all about? What do you see welfare as being, Tallulah? Okay, so I think the intent of welfare is much more different than the reality of welfare. So I think the intention of welfare is to make sure that everybody has rights to food, water, shelter, um, and social security, healthcare, blah blah blah. But the the in reality, it doesn't actually um, play out quite like that. It becomes kind of this cycle of poverty. Um, and many people that are living on welfare are living well below the poverty line um, and like, without stable housing. New starts just over 550 a fortnight. So, I mean, yeah, do the maths. What is, <laughs> that's so little to live off. Yeah, it's not enough to be able to afford rent, which comes out of um, a new start payment, um, groceries, especially if you're living um, regional or remote where things are. 10 times more expensive. So there's this kind of like angry person in the back of my head who's been going to be the devil's advocate in all of this. And I'm going to ask you these questions and just want to, want to know what you'd say. So some people would be like, well, people should be working. Welfare, people shouldn't just be getting handouts. And what do you think about that? Well, look, uh, working number one is um, all good and great when you have access to jobs. Um, so if you're living in a remote community, there's very limited jobs. People are actually forced to work in CDP situations. Also, you know, jobs require training and education and there's not much access to that either in, in remote communities and regional areas. Um, and then you can talk about disability, people not being able to work due to health reasons. And then there's things like not being able to work in a way that gives you a feeling of purpose or a sense of um, like you're doing something that you love. You know, people talk about doing a job that they enjoy and then you never work a day of your life. Mm. But where do you find this kind of this kind of job? So I'm kind of the angry person again and I'm saying, well, people just need to move to where there are jobs. 
Well, how is that fair? Like, you know, you're asking somebody to move away from their home and from their family and from the place that they grew up in and that they love. How is it fair to ask someone to move for the purpose of a job? And also a job is is a very westernized capitalist value. So a job coming into um, a place or enforced in a society wherein jobs are not of value, it kind of doesn't make sense and it's not justified, I suppose. I guess for me, I like the word contributions. Everyone wants to contribute to their society and to their community especially. And we decide as a society where we place our values and where we place value. So, you know, for example, there's hundreds of jobs that are in and around social media But why is it so hard to get funding to support ranger programs? Or, you know, because I think about it like this. Let's imagine you're in school in a remote community Mm -hmm. and being on country gives people so much cultural and spiritual well-being. But then whenever things go wrong, people say, well, there's nothing to do. People don't, kids don't have anything to do, all that kind of thing. And I just think... We choose where we place value as a society. Mm. So imagine if in every community there was, say, a language center, an art center, kind of a caring for country, kind of ranger um, work. There was sports work that people could do um, and there was culture work, you know, and most importantly as well, that there was work to care for people. So caring for old people, caring for young people, caring for people with disabilities, There's nothing that stops people from being able to live and stay on community and and contribute rather than necessarily work itself if that contribution is valued by us as a society. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. I mean, we need to be able to get enough people to see the value in these kind of things. So it's kind of like the debate around work and welfare is actually the debate about something bigger. It's about what we value as a, as a society and how we make policy makers realise that we're not putting enough value in the right things. Have you heard of uh, the Universal Basic Income? No. So it's a movement happening around the world and it's being trialled in a few different places where every member of society has a base level of income, irrespective of what you do or you don't do. And part of the thinking behind that movement is that there's heaps of people as well who work but shouldn't necessarily be working. So, for example, like my mum and my auntie looked after my gran before she passed for quite a few years. And, um, you know, imagine if you didn't have have to have the pressures of full-time work so that you could care for an old person. Or, for example, what about like mums who feel pressured or dads who feel pressured to go back to work when they just want to care for their little one. Well, yeah. People talk about like skills that you can tra- – or transferable skills mm. from, from being a mum and being in motherhood or a father, mm. um, full-time parent, and then going back into the workplace. And you can – like there's a whole lot of skills there that parents use that can be transferred into, um, you know, job qualities like – Time mm. management, um, organizing, managing, cooking. But I think part of this problem is that we're not actually, we're, we're deciding to put value, same thing, on certain things and not others. So another example I can think of is, you know, I worked two and sometimes three jobs through university. And imagine if you had just an income 
you could go to university and actually study. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. how many people go to uni and actually spend the time studying? Well, yeah, that's part of my problem. Yeah. I don't have enough money. But imagine if you did, then you could actually do what you're meant to do. Another thing I think about is what about all the musicians? Like there's people who want to actually create art. And as a society, I mean, we're on a community radio station that values community radio. So we, we value the idea that community makes music. But... Again, people have difficulty in making ends meet. And so part of the whole point of universal basic income is just to to ease that edge of the worries that people have. Like I think about my parents would, I'm sure, um, and many parents, grandparents, I mean, would be wonderful carers for their grandkids. But unless you've got kind of superannuation set for for decades, then it's a really hard ask to have people to do that. Mm. So it just seems to me like a lot of this stuff is about where we place value as a society around what we consider work to be and recalibrating it so we think about work as being whole sorts of different things. Mm. Uh, Sorry, this makes me think of a really close family member of mine who had a really good job on one of the mines here in the Kimberley and worked for lots of money um, and then was made redundant and now lives in my community um working doing the same work that he did on the mines or similar driving heavy machinery and all of that kind of stuff but is forced to work on the cdp program and therefore is paid less than half of what he was what what their work is actually valued to be mm-hmm. so look i think we're going to talk to some great guests today to kind of talk about stuff to do with say the cashless debit card but I, I just thought it'd be really useful to talk about some of the, the story behind the story, which is what we choose to place value on as a society. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to listen to a song now. We're going to listen to Work From Home by Fifth Harmony. I worry about nothing. I am wearing a nada. I'm sitting pretty impatient, but I know you gotta put in them hours. I'ma make it harder. I'm sending pick up to picture. I'ma get you fired. I know you're always on that night shift, but I can't stand these nights alone. And I don't need no explanation. But you gotta go to work, 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 work. You don't gotta go to work, 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 work. And my body do the work, 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 work. We can work tomorrow, oh, oh. We can work tomorrow, oh, oh. Let's put it in motion. I'ma give you a promotion. I'll make it feel like a vacate, turn the bed into an ocean We don't need nobody, I just need your body Nothing but sheets in between us, ain't no getting off early I know you're always on that night shift But I can't stand these nights alone And I don't need no explanation Cause baby, you're the 
Welcome back to our show. Uh, we have a special guest today. We are talking to Elise Klein, who is an academic and uh, has done work on welfare and um, the government's control of welfare. How are you going, Elise? Great, thanks. Thanks for having me. Elise, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and some of the work that you do? Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, I'm, I'm a researcher at um, the University of Melbourne, about to move to the ANU in Canberra. And I guess my research more recently has been looking at income management, so and particularly the cashless debit card, the trial that was rolled out uh, in the East Kimberley. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of the card and how it all came to be, where it is now, where it's at? Yeah, so I mean, there's a sort of a long history and a long story to the cashless debit card. It's not the first lot of income management that has been in this country. The first lot was um, part of the Northern Territory intervention um, in 2007. And this was the basics card. So people across the Northern Territory were compulsorily put on this thing. Uh, 50% of their money was quarantined. So it was put into onto the basics card and people were restricted and how much uh, what they could spend that that money on. And of course, not being able to pull out that amount in cash. So some evaluations had been done on that and showed that um, it didn't do anything good for people, that it didn't reach any of the policy um, expectations. But instead of scrapping that, people in the Northern Territory have been left on that. They're still on it, 12 years on since the intervention. And then in 2014, you had um, Tony Abbott get Andrew Forrest, who's mining billionaire, made heaps of money off the Kimberley, do an uh, in the Indigenous Employment and Training Review for the federal government. And part of his recommendations for that review 
was to take this idea of income management and instead of scrapping it because there was no evidence for it, decided to ramp it up into this thing called the cashless debit card. Well, actually, he originally called it the healthy welfare card and he proposed 100% of people's welfare money would be quarantined onto the card. Elise, can I ask what kind of community consultation existed or took place? Um, at that stage, not. I mean, it depends how you use the word community and I think this has been sort of the thing about income management is that, you know, elites or um, um, service providers or um, sort of people who are not going to get put on the card get talked to and the people that get put on the card get completely ignored and get you know, not they're not part of the community consultation. So their voices don't get heard. And we've seen that through the whole sort of story of income management. Elise, can you tell us, can you give us a brief summary about the card itself? Who is on it in the Kimberley? Who's, you know, who's at risk of being on it? Uh, and what payments um, are subject to the card? Yeah, so the card um, compulsorily... Uh, targets anyone in the trial sites uh, in the Kimberley. So at the moment, it's in the East Kimberley. Um, and where in the East Kimberley? So Kununurra, Wyndham, and and a couple of the ta- little um, communities around that that area. Um, you are put on it if you're taking any state payment except for age pension and veterans uh, payments. So that includes New Start, yep. parenting payments, carers payments, youth disab- allowance, disability everybody so um you don't get a choice if you get put on it or not if you're living in that area you're you're on it um and uh that's a broad range of people who is taking state payments for a broad range of uh reasons um all being tarred with the same brush all being treated um uh you know under these assumptions that there's something wrong so what does it actually mean though the card does all of your welfare go onto the card what could you use it for? So uh, 80% of your money goes onto the card and uh, and then 20% can, goes into your normal account and you can take that take cash so that 20% can be taken out as cash. Everything else has to be st- has to stay on the card and cannot be taken out as cash. Um, and therefore you can only use it um, in in places that you can use a, a, a card. So um, yeah, if you want to um, buy something informally, like some fruit and veg down the road or meat down the road, um, yeah, you, you need to have cash for that. And so people are running out of cash for, for those kinds of important day-to-day things. When we were in uh, Kununurra, there were examples of people, for example, unable to put their kids on the bus to go from Lakeside into town because, you know, a client had four or five kids and it was $2.50 a kid. So that was like $12.50 one way. And if you've only got 20% of your um, income as cash, well, you're going to have to be able to you quarantine it yourself for how much you actually use for what you, what you need to use your cash with. So it kind of does the opposite from what I saw from being able to manage your money. It kind of makes you even ha- have even less power to manage your money properly. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in 
2014, that forest review, the cashless debit card was sort of written with sort of broader implications towards a cashless society. Cashless society makes a lot of money for particular financial institutions. And, you know, we're seeing this already with the cashless debit card. Um, the provider of it is Inju, a private company um, that's making millions off administering uh, the cashless debit card. Um, it's also creating a two-tiered banking system where, you know, people that are being put on this thing are offered one financial product that has um, severe limitations um, to what you're you're able to do with it, and everyone else gets another financial product, which you can choose um, what, what who you go with and and how that's going to work. So, you know, it's really concerning the the broader implications um, to to these technologies. I suppose I'm interested in knowing more about welfare as a human right. Is welfare a human right? Well, in in sort of UN international sort of law, social security and having access to social security absolutely is. But then in terms of the cashless debit card and income management, there's a whole lot of other rights that get evoked because um, you're targeting, well, they're targeting mainly First Nations people. So the majority of people uh, on income management in Australia are First Nations. So this also speaks to, you know, questions of free prior informed consent, which people are not, like, you know, through the consultation process, people, that's not proper consultation free prior informed consent at all and there's you know a racial discrimination sort of piece to it uh well the intervention came because they suspended the racial discrimination act um and then there's a whole lot of other rights that are also breached in terms of disability rights and and this is really concerning uh that these human rights considerations seem to be overlooked and sidelined can i ask uh I mean, a lot of this seems to be about control. When Tula was asking about welfare being a human right, is it imagined as something that is should be controlled or is controlled? Well, I mean, there's different views on this, but, I mean, if you look at the places that are being targeted for income management, you know, one of the big sort of focuses is getting people into jobs. But most of these places, you know, the labour markets are, are really limited. Um, you know, in Kununurra, you know, the biggest, the main form of, of unemployment is, uh, uh, unemployment is that there's not enough jobs. That was the Kimberley Development Commission, you know, found these, that, that was their analysis that they released. And so, you know, when people don't have the opportunity to be in work, people are going to fall through the cracks and therefore need support to to survive. And that's what welfare does. That's why it's a right. It's, it's a social security. I mean, the added complication, of course, and the added piece of this is, is that um, people were forced off their land, you know, through colonisation and, and made dependent on the state, made dependent on these ideas of formal wage labour. Um, and so, you know, the sort of colonial aspect of this is is, is very real too. Well, I think also money is power, unfortunately, in this day and age. Money is power. So when you're taking money away from people in the form of a cashless debit card, you're taking away their power, essentially. Oh, absolutely. And and that's what, you know, some of this research that we've been doing in um, the East Kimberley has been, been seen, that people... Uh, you know, are forced into more harder positions that, you know, they can't look after, you know, it's harder to to, um, work out funds under the cashless debit card regime to look after their kids. Can I Um, just interject, why is it harder? 
Because cash is important and um, people are, the assumption is that people aren't managing their money properly. Um, and the reality is people are managing their money properly. They just don't have much of it because, um, as everybody knows, these welfare payments are super low. And so, you know, people are doing the best they can, but the cashless debit card interrupts the way in which people are managing their money and have all their finances. And, uh, and you know, the reduction of being able to use cash for everyday purchases makes, makes things hard. I don't know if you can answer this, but you were talking about how there aren't any jobs and so what is a pathway to creating I guess economic security for people? Well you know I mean there's different ideas on this and people in communities are already doing heaps of thinking around it. I mean there are people that sort of say that the old CDEP the one you know way before what's you know the CDP that's now um, was a better a better idea because that was money for 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 work that wasn't welfare that that idea was uh, money for um, work that people were doing in community and and people you know there was a variety of different ways in which people were paid or, um, there were a variety of different things that people were paid for um, but when the government put everybody on welfare and and you know transitioned into what's you know RJCP and now CDP um, you know that's increased uh, unemployment hugely um, and and unemployment has gone up big time and then in terms of more broadly I think you know I mean there's people doing all sorts of um, job creation initiatives but I think in remote areas there is a limitation in the, in the way in which capitalism works and the ways in which labour markets can be created and and the government doesn't seem to really want to engage in those limitations they just sort of say jobs 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 without um, understanding that not everything can be commodified. I think also you know a lack in education and training in areas in, in like in remote areas that's going to have a huge effect on um, whether jobs are available or whether people have the opportunity to jobs without training and the education that they need. And um, also following on what you were saying uh, earlier, um, <clears throat> people aren't being given the opportunity to to be able to manage their funds, isn't it? Innocent until proven guilty. Aren't you supposed to be able to, to be given the power to manage your funds until you can and you might need help? The assumption that people... Uh, not managing their funds, I think, is just unnecessary and wrong. Absolutely, and and that's the long history, you know, um, rations and, you know, those ideas of rations that were given to people carried the same kind of idea. One, that they didn't want to pay people actual cash because they, um, you know, exploiting people. But two, there was these racist ideas about, you know, people's ability to, to manage finances and you see that continuing today. Um, there hasn't really been much of a shift in that, which is really, really concerning. We're going to cut to one of my favourite musicians, Dolly Parton, and we're listening to 9 to 5. Take it away, Dolly. Tumble out of bed and I stumble to the kitchen Pour myself a cup of ambition And yawn and stretch and try to come to life Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping Out on the streets the traffic starts jumping With folks like me on the job from nine to five Working nine to five What a way to make a living 
right working nine to five welcome back to the show so can i ask then perhaps another stream of argument that comes through is just looking at alcohol and drug and gambling kind of abuse and addiction and giving people access to welfare and then people misusing it i mean what would you say to that people do have concerns that there are kind of social problems in the kimberley and how is the government meant to address those those concerns if it can't quarantine people's welfare? Well, I mean, the government's never established why um, they haven't properly funded services. Um, Tallulah, you were talking about, you know, giving people opportunities, training, you know, education, uh, but also all the sort of social services that are found um, in the cities. Why the government hasn't put those in place in these trial sites it's never established that if it had done that then maybe you know there's then this sort of argument of well you know there's some dysfunction or whatever whatever you know it's, it's never established why it hasn't looked after people in the way that that other citizens are um, in other parts of the country and can I say I, I kind of hear from both of you to this kind of idea that they're just hasn't been enough investment in remote Australia, in regional Australia, in Indigenous Australia. Has is this just an issue? This jobs, jobs, jobs kind of comment that you made, and the lack of it, lack of it, is it just that there hasn't been investment in this part of the world, in this part of Australia? Well, I think there's, you know, there's been money, but most of that money's gone to, if I can say, white people's employment servicing Aboriginal poverty and not supporting, you know, self-determined sovereign decisions by peoples who understand the reality, day-to-day the reality. So it's, you know, there's been money being put into ideas coming from government top-down or sort of middle-down, um, but not never from the bottom up or very rarely from the bottom up. And, you know, this is long-standing and they just don't seem to get it. Can you take us through a little bit more about what your actual research actually looked like? So what was the work that you did? What were the results? 
and you know what's going on now in relation to the card? Yeah, so the research that we did in the East Kimberley, well, was in part with you, um, Sarush, and other community organisations that initially were concerned about the introduction of the cashless debit cards. This is going back to 2016 in the East Kimberley. It was one of the first trial sites. And so we weren't ever going to do an evaluation because we were never going to be able to have that reach. But we were going to understand the sort of politics and the issues of power that were going on in the rollout and the implementation of uh, the card. So, I mean, you know, the kinds of things that we're looking at is, of course, the impacts on people's lives that um, were put on the card. So the ways in which it disrupted their ability to look after their finances, but also the way it fractured um, this idea of community and the ways in which, you know, some people were listened to. So the government says, you know, we've consulted with people, but in reality it consulted with a very few group, uh, a very few um, amount of people and completely excluded um, people that were going to be put on the card. And it continues to do that. It continues to fail to listen um, to people that have been put on the card. Uh, and that's created issues in, in you know, uh, in, in the towns. And then we are, you know, also looking at the ways in which the government has used and misused evaluations. So it has done its own evaluation in the Kimberley um, and in Sejuna, which were the first two trial sites. And it was really alarming to see how methodologically problematic and analytically problematic the evaluation is. So even today, you have the House of Reps debating the, the proposed rollout of the cashless debit card in the Northern Territory. And they're still using results of this really poor evaluation that they did, um, which has been completely discredited, discredited by many academics around the country. And, and, and it fails to take into account, you know, these, what, what people are saying and the impacts of the card in, in, on people's lives. It completely continues to overlook that. So uh, the card's in place now. How long will it be here for? Is, you, we mentioned, you mentioned a trial. Is it here forever? Is it here for another five weeks? What's yeah. what, where is it at? So I mean, that's that's is the question because they keep saying it's a trial, but it just continues to go on. So it doesn't have an end date. I mean, the legislation is ending shortly, but that's why they've got another piece in front of Parliament at the moment to try and extend it to twenty twenty one. And then you know, the but the question is, how much longer does it have to be until? you know, it becomes not a trial, but actually an ongoing program, which is what everybody that's on the card, most people on the card feel like it has been. Um, also because they've never properly evaluated it and they ha- don't listen to research around it. Um, so that's, you know, I mean, part of a trial is to properly evaluate it, is properly research it and listen to those results. And they're not doing that. So, I mean, it does, co- the government calls it a trial, but uh, in reality, it just looks like just trying to continue to roll it out across the country. Tallulah, you've spent a lot of your life in the Kimberley, right? Yes. So cash seems to be really fundamental to the way people live. Like it's one thing, to, you know, like when you're in the city, you can get your, your debit card out and use it for things all the time. But cash just seems to be more important here, right? Well, I mean, we have issues all the time of FPOS machines going down. How are you supposed to pay for groceries if FPOS machines are down for days? Mm. 
And the other thing is people who need money, it's easier to give money in the form of cash rather than in a bank transaction that takes days. So, you know, a family member needs to borrow some money and then you've got to transfer money which takes days for the, the money to go through rather than having the cash to give to a family member who needs it. One of the things that I kind of struggled to understand was a lot of the ways that people who are experiencing poverty kind of live is actually they live in community with each other they support each other through hardship so for example when people had their power cut off family members would help give them money to have their pa- to get to get their power put back on yeah how would that have happened it would have happened with cash right you don't do it like a debit transfer it's just so outside of the reality of the way people live another example um, we had people who would pull money to get from Kanara to Halls Creek um, pull the petrol money yeah yeah, well, yeah, that's the thing, you know, people chuck in. It's like, uh, what is it? Patch up. Yeah. Give me some cash, we'll patch up and we'll go and buy, you know, some food or something. We'll so it's up. like forcing people to live only as individuals. I mean, don't, is that some, some of what your research shows as well, Elise? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the point is, is the card doesn't work. It doesn't meet its objectives. It never has. And, you know, all the way back to the basics card in the Northern Territory, which is the intervention, you know, from the intervention to now the cashless debit card, they don't reach um, their government objectives. So the assumptions underpinning this thing is wrong. And so you have to ask, what's this really about? And, you know, I mean, people have many sort of thoughts on this, but um, I think, you know, in the fact that it targets predominantly First Nations people, um, you know, there's been long, long history in this country about, you know, um, taking of land and, and um, making money off Aboriginal land. I think we're seeing here um, a, sh- a shift. There's still, of course, that fight. And then there's this other fight around, you know, making money off people's minds and behaviours and trying to create this whole industry on on um, trying to control uh, Aboriginal behaviours. Um, and, and that's what we're seeing here with, um, with the cashless debit card, income management, basics card, CDP, um, and, and it's a problem. You've been listening to Tulula and Sarush on Deadly Justice on Gulari Radio, and we've been talking to Elise Klein about the cashless debit card and some of its implications for people up here in the Kimberley. Thank you for, for your time, Elise, for speaking to us about the card and coming in to talk to us. Thanks so much for having me. Let's cut to one of my favourite songs, Work It by Missy Elliott. Shave my cha-cha You do what you don't Or you will or won't cha 
go downtown and eat it like a vulture. See my hips, big hips, so chop. See my butts and my lips, don't chop. Lost a few pounds in my waist, go ya. This the kind of beat that go ba ta ta. Ba ta 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 ta. Sex me so good, I say blah blah blah. Work it, I need a glass of water. Boy, oh boy, it's good to know ya. Is it worth it? Let me work it. I put my thing down, flip it and reverse it. It's your primitive. It's your primitive plan yet. If you got a big, let me search it. If I know how hard I gotta work yet. It's your primitive plan yet. It's your primitive plan yet. If you a fly gal, get your nails done, get a pedicure, get your hair did. Boy, lift it up, let's make a toaster. Let's get drunk, this gon' bring us closer. Don't I look like a Holly Berry poster? See the Belvedere playing tricks on ya. Girlfriend wanna be like me, never. You won't find a trick that's even better. I make you hot as Las Vegas weather. Listen up close while I take it backwards. Okay, begins the galaxy in me, which I I'm not a prostitute, but I can give you what you want. I love your braids and your mouth full of phones. You love the way my butt boom, 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 boom. Keep your eyes on my boom, boom, boom. You think you can handle this? Cause don't, cause don't, don't. Take my thumb off and my tail go boom. Cut the lights on so you see what I can do. Is it worth it? Let me work it. I put my thing down, flip it and reverse it. It's your primitive plan yet. It's your primitive plan yet. If you got a big, let me search it. If I know how hard I gotta work yet. It's your primitive plan yet. It's your primitive plan yet. Boys, boys, all type of boys. White Puerto Rican Chinese boys. Wine, thai, thai, yo, thai, yo, thai, yo, thai. Rock, don't thai, yo, thai, yo, thai, yo, thai. Girls, girls, get that cash. If it's nine to five, we're shaking your ass. Ain't no shame, ladies, do your thing. Just make sure you ahead of the game. You know, Mrs. Still super duper, but Prince couldn't get me change my name. Pa pa, who to can say your slave again? No sir. Picture black saying, Oh yes, I'm my sir. No. Got a Lamborghini, so I drive faster. No. Just to make your haters even freaking madder. No. Admit I'm the shit name, one new badder. When I drop this record here, it won't even matter. Why you act dumb like good dog? Say you act dumb like good dog. As the drummer boy go brr up a pum pum, give you some 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 of this cinnabon. Is it worth it? Let me work it. I put my Thing down, flip it and reverse it. It's your primitive plan yet. It's your primitive plan yet. If you got a big, let me search it. If I know how hard I gotta work yet. It's your primitive plan yet. It's your primitive plan yet. Come on, come on, fellas. I like the way you work that. Welcome back to the show. Uh, so we've been talking about welfare and uh, the cashless debit card, but currently the government doesn't drug test recipients of social security payments in Australia. However, there's been a bill in Parliament on a number of occasions to drug test people on welfare, Tallulah. And um, after the election, the government introduced it once more, and the idea is that there will be a trial in three locations, one in New South Wales, one in Queensland, and here in Mandurah down 
south in um, WA. And the idea is if you're on New Start or Youth Allowance, you can get uh, randomly drug tested. And if you fail the drug test enough, then you can have your New Start docked. Mm-hmm. So this has brought this whole question to, to bear for us. And so we've, we've kind of invited a guest speaker on our show today, just introducing uh, Eliana, Eliana Sarmiento. Welcome to the show, Eliana. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, who you are and uh, where you're from and um, you know what your experience is in relation to drug testing? Yeah, so um, I'm Eliana. I'm, uh, I'm currently employed by Kimberley Community Legal Services as a social worker. Um, I'm managing the, um, the elder abuse program here in Broome. And I've been a social worker since 2012, and I recently completed my PhD on drug courts. Uh, I did my research in uh, in the Dandenong Drug Court. Uh, at the time when I comp- when I did my research, my field work, there was only one drug court in Dandenong. So you're saying drug court a lot, and to us, the listeners in WA, we're confused. What is a drug court? Yeah, drug courts... Uh, I can give you a little bit of a background if you like. So drug courts uh, were developed in the United States in the late 1980s uh, as a response to the perceived ineffectiveness of traditional criminal justice system responses to drug-related crime. Over the past maybe 25 years, the drug court model has uh, taken off around the world um, and um, it's now really popular in Australia as well. So, I mean, to someone who has never heard of this, be- this before, what does it mean? What is a drug court? A drug court is an alternative to prison. Uh, so, uh, for people who have committed uh, offences that are related to drug use, uh, they are spared their time in prison and they are allowed to remain in the community and they must undergo drug and alcohol treatment and comply with a number of conditions. Uh, so it's kind of like a therapeutic model, is that right? Allegedly therapeutic, yeah. And can you does that include, you said offences that involve drugs. What if, say for example, there's a kind of a, a theft or a burglary offence and you were under the influence of drugs during that time? Does that include those kinds of offences as well? It does depend on the jurisdiction. So uh, what I'll be referring to is how it works in, in Victoria. So in Victoria, in order to be part of the programme, you must show a nexus between your offending and your drug use or alcohol use because the drug court in Victoria includes alcohol. Other drug courts in Australia don't include alcohol. I, I believe uh, until a couple of years ago, Victoria was the only one that, the Victorian drug court was the only one that included alcohol as well. And so does it mean, from my understanding, you have to plead guilty and then you enter into that kind of program? Yeah, in Victoria, uh, you is a post-sentencing uh, option, so you must plead guilty to the charges, and the charges of it, obviously there has to be a connection between your offending and your drug or alcohol use. Yeah. So, can you tell us a little bit about what your research showed? Uh, the drug court uh, has many practice, different practices to mainstream uh, courts. I looked at uh, four different interventions. Uh, so I looked at uh, admission processes in the drug court, so how people are admitted and how that nexus between uh, offending and drug use is made, and how the 
legal actors like magistrates and lawyers make that connection. Um, and I, one of the interventions that I looked at was also um, drug testing because drug testing is a, a really important part of uh, of the drug treatment order. Yeah. So um, we're talking about drug testing today because there's a possibility that the federal government will introduce drug testing for certain um, social security payments. And so what, what were the results of your, your research? What did, you, what did you observe in relation to testing itself? Is it a useful practice or, um, yeah, what did you find? Well, it's um, uh, because the, in the drug court they do the testing, uh, so they take the samples and, um, uh, and they, did, they do the testing off-site, so it's lab-based testing. Uh, in some drug courts in, in the U.S. is on-site testing, so they do the testing on the spot. But because in Victoria is uh, um, lab-based, they they do take the sample and uh, it, they, they need to run some sort of uh, specimen integrity testing. And I won't, won't go into that today, but it's, ti- it's quite time-consuming. So it means that it takes about 10 minutes per participant to test and... It creates a lot of waiting lists. Uh, wait, you know, wait, waiting lists. No, uh, it, participants do have to wait long periods of time in order to be tested, and um, they do have a lot of. Uh, uh, they do have to attend a lot of commits, commitments of, as part of their drug t- treatment order, and they are do they are waiting. Uh, you know, with other people who also use drugs. So part of the feedback that we got from drug participants was that the drug court was trying to make them sort of integrate into mainstream society, but what they were doing with all this waiting around uh, to be tested was actually they were spending a lot of time together uh, talking about drug use and um, it sort of... the, the, the the drug court with the drug testing actually achieved the opposite to what they wanted. So did you spend a lot of time with drug users during your research? You mean people who use drugs? I don't understand. Is there something wrong with the term drug user? Well, I guess uh, the drug user term is stigmatizing. And by saying people who use drugs, we are separating that, uh, you know, the action of taking drugs from the identity of the person. So we are defining as much more than, you know, their drug use, drug using behavior. Yeah, that's fair enough. I guess, I mean, you and I both drink to Laura, so you could technically say we're drug users and I wouldn't be comfortable with that stigma, would you? No, I'd prefer to be called someone who uses alcohol. (laughs) (laughs) So um, can you say then, all in all, Eliana, from your working with people, did you see that that there were benefits to drug testing? So I guess, yeah, it, it, some of them found it uh, beneficial. Um, but I guess part of our recommendations were that uh, this, because in the drug court at the time when I was doing my research, drug court participants were being sanctioned with imprisonment, imprisonment days uh, when the uh, drug test came up positive. So they were being penalized uh, with prison for for every instance of of drug drug use drug use. So I guess it's we thought that th- that was quite 
punitive if we were trying to sort of um, uh, help people that were trying to recover? My experience, uh, from what I, I've, I've heard, um, drug testing is quite expensive. Do you think it justifies the cost um, in in doing, like, you know, drug, drug testing and drug court models? Yeah, I do think it's, it's, uh, it's an expensive way to monitor um, um, uh, drug use, especially because of what I, what I said before, um, uh, this testing that is done in the drug court is done um, is done is based la- uh, is based in labs rather than on site. Um, when I l- try to look at how much money the drug court was the Victorian drug court was spending on on uh, on drug testing, I couldn't find that information. It wasn't published anywhere. But I think that you know it would be a really big contract that they have with the pathology the pathology service. Uh, is receiving a, a lot of money from. So that being said, wouldn't it make more sense to put s- money into preventative measures rather than drug testing? Yeah, it's um, it would make sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess part of that is then bringing it back to the example of of welfare. What do you, do you have any um, ideas about what lessons y- you could offer? for policymakers in the welfare space? Well, I think the main one would be it It perhaps could be an opt-in option. So if people choose to have it uh, because they are ready to make changes to their drug and alcohol use and they see it as beneficial mm. and they have a choice, mm. I guess it's good to have uh, as an option. Mm. Uh, but to make it... Uh, mandated um people will end up engaging in you know will like for instance uh, we had the case of this this participant that i interviewed and the he was um he was using synthetic cannabis which is not is not a drug that is uh, uh, picked up by testing Mm. so and he was also uh overusing a volume so Rather than using cannabis, he w- he was using um, he was using uh, synthetic cannabis and Valium to replace his to, to manage his withdrawals from from cannabis, and I think that's that's much more harmful than using cannabis. And and kind of going back to Tula's point, the other interesting thing is that you know in the welfare example, when people have their welfare cut off. Then I can I can't see particularly if those people have social problems or they're not they're not you know doing their best how being cut off welfare completely will help them like it seems counterintuitive to me yeah and and that's you know that will they will be I guess one of the most of the all of the drug core participants uh, were also in res- uh, they were getting um, welfare payments as well. And they were experiencing a lot of disadvantage, you know, struggling with housing and food. And I guess how if you stop um, the, the their payments, how are they going to, um, yeah, just uh, meet their basic needs? And another sort of finding was that 
because they were spending so much time drug testing, they were losing uh, employment opportunities. We've had a bit of a devil's uh, advocate on my shoulder throughout this show. And perhaps my last question will be, well, will it at least cut off people's access to drugs if people don't have access to welfare? Uh, I think there will always be a way to uh, get drugs. and If you have a need, right? Or if you have an addiction. Yeah, and... Um, that's a hard question because I don't want to say that they will end up committing crime because that mm. would be a big assumption. Mm. But I think it will definitely, you know, if further disadvantage them and, and create other sort of problems for society. All right. Uh, thank you, Eliana, for being a guest on our show today. You've been listening to Tallulah and Sarush. We're from Kimberley Community Legal Service and you've been listening to our show called Deadly Justice on Gulari Radio. Check us out next time. Thanks for being here.